Welcome to the Elevate the Vibe podcast, bringing you juicy convos with thought leaders discussing the wild world of parenting. Most doctors say that you can only diagnose endometriosis through explorative lacroscopy. That's not true. If you know how to look for it, you can find at least evidence of it, diagnose it, so then that woman can get a treatment plan covered by her insurance before we approach invasive, expensive surgeries. That clip was from our guest of the show today, Paula Pavlova. I am your host of the Elevate the Vibe podcast, Katie Berlin. And I am the co-host of the Elevate the Vibe podcast, Jason Berlin. It is Sunday evening, Memorial Day weekend. We haven't really been venturing out much, obviously, because we're still in quarantine. But this weekend, we did actually manage to go to the beach and stick our feet in the sand. Oh, man, it was so liberating just sitting there in the sand and, oh my gosh, just taking it all in, hearing the waves crash and... You know, because I didn't go in the water, but I just sat from a distance with Randy, our dog, who is kind of crazy, but that's another story. And uh, just listening to the waves crash and seeing Shug here and our boy just have fun in the water was just so awesome after these three months of not being able to go to the beach. Well, and we weren't in the water swimming because we still can't go on the beach, but we just walked up to the water's edge and stuck our feet in, which was really nice. Mm -hmm. But our little one loves the beach and he'll ask for the beach over and over again. He'll say, just say beach, beach, beach. Mm -hmm. So we were finally able to take him this weekend and it felt, it felt really good. It's just great to see some signs of life too. I mean, today I went out to the beach as well and uh, the strand has opened up where we can bike and people walk along this path on the beach and there are kite surfers everywhere and people just having fun and enjoying life. And it was just refreshing. Yeah, you feel like there's a little bit of normalcy in this craziness. It's all going to be over before we know it and we'll be back to some sort of normal that'll be awesome. And it's going to be great. Yeah, I don't know if it'll ever be normal. It's going to be great though. We'll get, <laughs> yeah. we'll get through this. Yeah, it'll it'll be different, but we'll be all right, hopefully. We will. All right. So what's going on for today's guest, Shug? So today's guest is a good friend of mine, Paula Pavlova. And Paula's a wellness and women's health entrepreneur. She is a business owner, writer, yoga and meditation teacher, Reiki master, and crystal healer. Now wait, hold on. Where did you meet Paula, honey? Paula and I met in our yoga teacher training. 500-hour yoga teacher training at Yoga Works. That's so awesome. Yes, and unlike me, it is part of her career outside of all of the other entrepreneurial endeavors that she has. But uh, yoga has been a staple in her life and really taught her how to love herself while tapping into her own healing. And this episode, we'll get into this a little bit more, but at the age of 13, Paula began to suffer from chronic pain due to endometriosis. And after years of suffering, she was officially diagnosed in 2018 and is passionate about advocating for women's health. For anyone who's unfamiliar with endo, we will dive deeper into that disease during this episode, but endometriosis affects over 200 million people worldwide, and it doesn't just affect women, it also affects men and children. And Paula's mission is to help others understand that they're not alone in this and there is hope to find healing. You just have to take this process into your own hands and listen to your body along the way. You know, she's just been through so much and I'm just so grateful that she decided to share her experience and her knowledge with us. It's a blessing. All right, let's welcome Paula to the show. Well, hello, welcome. Hey, thanks. Welcome, yes. <laughs> So thank you for joining us today, and we would love for you to introduce yourself to the audience. All right. Um, so my name is Paula Pavlova, and um, I am kept the catch-all term a wellness entrepreneur or educator. And um, I my specialty is yoga, meditation, mind-body connection. And most recently, I've been kind of shifting my energy and my focus towards how um, all of these things align with women's health and are largely excluded out of women's health. Um, so just, you know, trying to, to bring some, some much needed light to a very grim world of women's health care in this country. 
Yes. Yeah, so we're, we're super excited for you to join us. You have quite an interesting background of what led you to where you are today. So could you please lead us through that where you grew up, just some of the experiences that you had and what led you to your current place. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me know if uh, you want to cut me off at any point. It's kind of a long story. Um, <laughs> so I grew up in Vienna, Virginia, just outside DC. Um, but I spent the first, I guess, eight months of eight and a half months um, in utero in my mom's belly in post-communist Bulgaria. Um, so she got pregnant with me shortly after the regime ended. Um, so you can imagine things are quite unsettled, um, actually much like the experience that we're in right now was probably how a lot of people were feeling. Um, and she decided she had to get out. She started working on getting out of the country the moment she found out she was pregnant with me and um, thought she was going to leave at three months or so to San Francisco. Funny, I live here now. Um, but the sponsor of the visa just backed out last minute and decided, never mind, I don't want to do this. Because um, it was a friend of a friend of a friend. And uh, then um, she managed to get somebody else to sponsor her visa when she was eight and a half months pregnant and delivered me two weeks after she arrived in Washington, D.C. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So by the chin on my chinny chin chin, I made it. I'm an American um, and was born into a much more fortunate life than I would have been otherwise. Like my entire trajectory would be completely different. My freedoms would be completely different. My ability to travel would be completely different because um, most Americans don't realize you can go anywhere in the world without a visa and we're the, one of the few. Um, so very fortunate. And um, grew up most of my time in the suburbs of D.C., uh, but spent about half the year until I was about 12 years old in Bulgaria. So we'd go for Christmas, New Year's, and then for the summer months, I'd always leave school early, come back late. That's because my dad was working there primarily. So in order to spend actually quality time with him, we had to go there. If he came to the States, he was, you know, up at odd hours and working nonstop. So he tried to come as often as he could, which is usually like maybe two, three times a year. Um, but most of my time that I spent with him was there. So uh, I did that till I was about 12 years old. It was an interesting world. I kind of felt like I was living two lives, to be honest. <laughs> um, also being bilingual, I spoke Bulgarian before I spoke English because no one in my household spoke English. Um, There's just a, a lot of stuff that as a child, I was like, okay, I know I, there, was no, there was no uncertainty in the situation that I was in, which was very different than most of my peers. I was living like a completely different life. And I think that that from a young age kind of, made me look at the world a little bit more openly because I realized that things were just not always what they seemed. Um, and then when I was around 12 years old, when I, when I was 12 years old, my father passed away unexpectedly. And that ended the back and forth between Bulgaria pretty abruptly. Um, it ended a lot of familiar relationships um, pretty ab abruptly and my life changed drastically. Um, and I mean, the best way I can describe it is like, I kind of went from a very, I don't know how, a very privileged, but like dystopian kind of way, uh, world to um, a reality check real fast. Um, and I was forced to grow up pretty quickly. I went to boarding school shortly thereafter. Um, I really was seeking guidance and I just didn't really know where to find it. Um, the boarding school definitely gave me some of that. There's some incredible life skills that I would not have gained any other way other than by attending boarding school. But it also um, definitely continued this dystopian um, institutional way of, of dealing with children who have been traumatized. Um, so there was a lot of layers that kind of compounded over time that um, I think revealed what it's like to um, have serious mental health problems. In retrospect, that's what was going on. Um, a bit of child neglect. Um, my parents loved me a lot, but they just didn't really know how to give me the things that I needed. Um, and so I say all of this, you know, with no hard feelings. Like I want to point out that everything that I bring up, even before I bring it up, like it's not about blaming. It's about forgiving and um, finding truth. So I, um, you know, in retrospect, see how all this came together. It led to um, a chronic eating disorder. It led to um, chronic pain due to endometriosis um, that I started exhibiting 
shortly after my after my father's death with the onset of my period. Um, and that continued for a very, very long time um, through high school. Luckily, the eating disorder ended in college, but I just replaced it with the drug habit. Um, but that also luckily didn't end the way that it could have. And unconventionally, through a lot of shitty shit, to be honest, it led me towards healing. Um, along the way, obviously, I was searching for healing. I, you know, I got help in all the conventional ways, but nothing really worked because it wasn't really being approached in a way that addressed all of my needs. And um, above that, the generational trauma that had that was living in my body. So things that I was holding on to that weren't even mine, things like my mother's experience and her grandmother's experience. That she was uh, a gypsy post-World War II, gave birth to my mom like basically on the streets and dropped my mom off at a hospital. So my mom was adopted um, by an amazing woman and my grandfather and her mom died when she was 16. So her adopted mother died when she was 16. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that got built up in my DNA. And now we know this from epigenetics and research on how that gets passed down through our cells that I just, no one took the time to notice. So long, long story short, um, I found yoga. I found nature. I found mother earth. I found crystals. I found essential oils. I found meditation uh, and all of these ancient techniques and healing gifts from the earth to redirect my focus back onto myself and learn how to love myself that ultimately is what allowed me to heal. So I, I know that the crystal is not some sort of like magic zap, here you go, get good vibes. It's something that reminds you that you are responsible for that yourself. My, my crystals give me that zap good vibes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy for you. Tell me, how do you no, do it? <laughs> All right. So I have a couple questions. I want to go back a little bit. So when you were a child growing up and you see your peers who maybe are, are living in the DC areas is definitely an affluent area and they're sort of living this life where they have no idea maybe what it's like outside of the affluence of DC. And then you see exactly what it can be like in other parts of the world. So you touched on it a little bit, but I'd love for you to talk about when you were a child, that mindset, like what, how that helped to shape you and what that meant to you. Yeah. So, um, I didn't just see it back and forth between the States and Bulgaria. I saw it in my daily life because while my parents were very well off, they didn't spend a lot of time with me. So they gave me, you know, a great school. They gave me a beautiful house to live in. They gave me every material thing I could have possibly wanted. But the people that were taking care of me, the people that were giving me love, which is what I really needed, were not affluent at all. And they had children of their own and they had ways of giving them love and giving them things that were different than the experiences that I had. And I saw the genuine connection and um, real love that was experienced between these families. And honestly, that's what fed me. That's what allowed me to become the person that I am today. Having that contrast, I just think is so important. And um, it really shows you that you, you just can't buy love. There's, there's no, you can't, there, like, no matter what the life looks like on the surface or how pretty the picket fence is, like, you don't know what is happening behind closed doors. Um, and so that was something that I was just, you know, immediately aware of from a very young age. And I learned where to seek what I really needed pretty quickly. And then when you transitioned and you went into boarding school, that was for your high school years. Yes. Correct? Yeah. So um, I don't, I mean, I don't know that my dad's death would have decided either way, whether I went to boarding school or not. I think that I probably would have gone regardless because even if he were still around, like he wouldn't have been home and my mom was spending most of her time away as well. And she did move to a foreign country after his death too. So she was away even more. So maybe, I don't know, it could have, it could have contributed my, to my decision, but I mostly decided to go there because my best friend from my childhood was also going there. So I was like clinging to anybody that I could, that was like, this is familiar. This is safe. This is constant. Um, because even in my caretaking, there was a lot of, of revolving doors that were heartbreaking for me because I would get attached to somebody and then that person would be gone for whatever reason. I get attached to somebody else and that person would be gone for whatever reason. So there was a lot of that. And then even like friends of my family, like friends of my mom and dad who I would get really close to and then they would be gone for some reason. So 
there was a lot of leaving and I just really needed a consistency. So that, I think that was the main reason I chose to go to that school. Yeah. And then at boarding school, so we haven't really touched on a lot of education yet in the podcast. And I'm really interested in parents that choose conventional schooling versus homeschooling. And boarding school is something that pretty much everyone is aware of, but not a lot of people pursue it or think about it as an option. And in reality, not a lot of people have, have it as a realistic option, because in many cases, it's more expensive than college. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> um, so it, it's a weird world, man. I don't know how else to describe it to you. It is a very subset of a subset of a subset of people who have generational wealth that permeates absolutely everything about the experience from who's accepted to which buildings are in whose names to who's, you know, wearing what. And I will completely admit that I was completely guilty of contributing to a lot of negative things about that environment, but I didn't know any better. Um, and only in retrospect, am I seeing like how, uh, so much of what I learned there, I had to unlearn. Um, and I'm lucky enough that I had the critical t thought and that I was primed from my childhood to be able to kind of look at things discerningly. Um, but if I ha didn't have that experience, um, for example, my brother had a completely different experience growing up than I do. And we see things very differently. Like he might listen to this and be like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, but for me, this is my truth. And this is what I saw. And I, I saw a lot of people who were, you know, just walking through life without any desire to see beyond their small bubble of existence. And ultimately, in the long run, it hurt many of them. It, in many cases, I'm sad to say has led to the death of some of them to overdoses to a lot of mental health issues, including eating disorders, which I struggled with, that follow you for the rest of your life until you're willing to say, okay, what is it? What is the root cause of me having this suffering? Why am I feeling it with this? Why am I not considering any other option? And what is it that actually makes me happy? Because it sure as hell isn't having you know, access to whatever I want financially at any moment at any time. Like those things are not filling. So there's a lot of that. Um, I'm not going to lie. Good things about boarding school. If you find a school that doesn't emphasize these kinds of behaviors, because our, our institution definitely promoted a lot of this stuff in, in ways that they thought were helpful to carry tradition down. But really, it's just to put certain people on a pedestal while making others feel left out, Specific, specifically gender norms, because girls were new to the, our boarding school. There's a lot of old traditions that were created when the girls first came in 10 years before I arrived there that, in retrospect, are completely disgusting and sexist and lead to body images of so many kinds. Even things that they ended that were passed down as rumors you know, I don't really want to get into the details of it. People who've gone, I'm sure, hear this and like are like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. If you want me to answer those questions, like reach out to me. I'll, I'll tell you if, if parents are particularly interested. Um, but the good things, time management, like nobody's business. Like when I got to college, I didn't have to lift a finger for the full, first year because I could just get things done while other people were just figuring it out for the first time. Um, being able to multitask. Like that's something that you just have to know how to do in a, in a, at boarding school. Like you have to be able to do it. Otherwise you're not going to get by. Um, there's a million things happening all at once. Being able to schedule out your day and like move from task to task or from left brain to right brain. Like those are things that you had to figure out at an age where m most people are at home and their parents are figuring that out for them. Like you're, you're responsible for a lot of that stuff yourself. So the school does schedule a lot, but you're going to, you have to figure out, you know, how to get all that homework done, how to order it yourself, how to, you know, prioritize it yourself. Um, and you also have access to all your teachers and your mentors right there at your fingertips. So I had certain people that carried me through like Dr. Richards. She was the, um, I guess, mental health professional. And I, I, I spent a lot of time with her uh, and she, you know, if it wasn't for her, I'd, I honestly don't know if I would have made it, made it through. So like there's sometimes it helps to have somebody in your life that isn't a parent that gives you that mentoring ability. And we usually don't get that until later in life. So I feel like I got ahead of the curve in that respect. So 
you're in boarding school and then you have your first period. And that happened before I left. Oh, wait. So yeah, my first period was 13 years old, middle school. But my first endometriosis was the first time I came home from boarding school. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about that very first experience, what that was like for you and sort of how this has shaped your trajectory in life. Okay. So like I said, I had my first period on my 13th birthday. (laughs) It was a pool party. I did not. Yeah. Um, And everything was fine for a little while. And I remember thinking like for the first couple of months that I had my period being like, oh my God, I'm so lucky. I'm not like, it's not, it's not painful. Everyone told me it's going to be so painful. And then I went to boarding school. I think it was my first time home from boarding school. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, but I was home alone, with my little brother and I got my period and I did what I had been doing, um, since the day I got my period, which is I woke up, you know, realized that happened, put a tampon in and went to go take a shower. And between the transition from the toilet to the shower, I felt like something was all of a sudden out of nowhere, just stabbing me, like from all directions, through my perineum, through my vulva, through my asshole, like through all directions, like up, down, side to side, like literally felt like unexplainable pain. And that, that was my first time ever feeling it. So I legitimately thought I was dying. And I started screaming and I was naked and I was home alone. My little brother, the door was locked and he, we share a bathroom. So his, his, like his wall is like, he hears me on the other side of the wall and he comes to the door. He starts knocking on the door and he's like seven. So he's like, what is happening to my sister? She's supposed to be watching me, um, taking care of me. And I, you know, just started screaming, call 911, call 911. Cause I didn't know what was happening. Um, and that's all I knew to do at that time. So uh, they called 911. He told me they were coming. I had to crawl. I remember having to crawl across the tile floor to the door to open it. And I remember the cold tile floor feeling like really good. So I was just like, I just stayed there. And then eventually they arrived. Um, I opened the door. They got me downstairs before they even, they, they brought me to like our kind of our foyer of our house, like we could have left through the, through that door and just gone straight to the hospital, but they were holding me there. I remember laying there and they were asking me my pain levels. And I was like, look at me, like what kind of, what kind of pain, like, do you need a number? Like, and then they, you know, they just kept asking me, kept asking me. And I was like 10 above 10, like a million and 10. And, and that he was like, okay, this should make it go away. And then in my home, in my foyer, they shot me up with morphine and I was 13 years old. So I obviously, it, it affected me immediately. Um, uh, that was the first time I ever felt high. Uh, I remember knowing that that was what the, that's what high was. I remember you're like, my pain's still a 10. I'll take another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was old enough or 14 at that point. I was old, old enough to know what it was. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And, um, they took me in the ambulance by the time I made it to the hospital, I was already high as like a fucking kite I couldn't feel my body I couldn't feel a single thing there was no way for me to describe to a doctor what I was experiencing so it was completely useless um I got there essentially the doctor looked at me and was like well welcome to womanhood this is what it's like to be a woman was that a a male or a female doctor it was a male um there was no like there let's check you out and see if there might be any complications there was no I mean I think they probably did an ultrasound but I don't really remember because I was so high and uh they said like something, I, you know, honestly, I don't know if it was this time or the many other times because I, when I went home and I told, told the story to my aunt who eventually came home um, and my mom and everybody, they were like, we should probably get you checked out further. At first, everybody was a little concerned. And then we went to, you know, many specialists and everybody was just like, well, she probably has ovarian cysts. It's very common. Like it'll probably get better as she gets older, blah, 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 blah. No diet suggestions, no, like, there's a disease that we found in 1890 that affects 200 million women worldwide, and one in 10 women have it, and uh, we should probably see if she has it while she's young, and it doesn't develop worse and attach itself to her rectum and her bowels and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, well, all that should happen because nobody said that. And so years go by. I keep getting told by more specialists that it's normal, um, and... It's definitely not. <laughs> yeah, and it's a different time too because you have to think when we were 
14 years old. I mean, it's not like now where you could just ask Alexa or Google something. It was just like a different time. So you have to go to doctors and try to figure it out. You can't Google doctor yourself. I remember Ask Jeevesing it because Ask Jeeves was a thing then. Um, but like nothing, you know, really came up and I didn't really know how to use search tools properly then. I mean, right. I, they teach me in middle school and I used like the quotes and the ands and the, all that stuff, but still, you know, there was <laughs> not much out there. Yeah, WebMD wasn't telling you all of the details that you needed. Well, WebMD actually has it wrong, by the way. WebMD and many other sources still say that endometriosis is the lining of your uterus growing in foreign places, and that's just not true. It's endometrial-like tissue, and every organ in your body has endometrial lining on the inside of it. So that means that this endometrial tissue can grow on the outside of any organ, and not just your uterus most commonly found in your uterus and the uterus screams out for pain the most because it's constantly going through this monthly cycle. But we've now found it in babies and we found it in men. So we know that it exists probably in all kinds of humans and maybe even animals um, for some fucked up reason. And that reason is definitely like what we've done to our environment. That's my personal opinion um, and a lot of scientific opinion, opinion, um, but we haven't done enough research to prove it. And then obviously the epigenetic component of how our, our genes um, mutate essentially uh, from generational trauma that's left unresolved is not to be forgotten either. So now you're in boarding school, you've had these experiences, you're seeing specialists, and you're really not getting an outcome from this. No. Um, and I was made to, I mean, I was, I was made to believe that I was crazy in many instances. Some of the things that doctors said to me were just like, it, they made you, made me feel like shit. And, you know, I didn't really even realize how damaging the things that they said were until I finally got the right answers. And it led definitely contributed to my eating disorder. Cause I was in a place where I felt like, holy shit, nobody's helping me. Nobody's like, I can't control anything. Like everything, everyone's leaving. I can't even like, you know, decide if I want to Leave it. I felt like my boarding school was a prison at a certain point, um, especially like when all my friends that were in day schools nearby got cars and they could drive around and they could come visit me on campus and I couldn't leave and I had to serve tables in order to, to leave. And all this stuff was just, it felt very entra entrapping. I don't know if that's the right word. I felt mm -hmm. entrapped. And um, I also was experiencing endobelly, which for people who have endometriosis, they know what that is well. But if you don't, it, it means that when you get a episode, um, which is what a lot of people refer to these inflammation periods as, is it'll often start with just like a lot of bloating and it'll look like almost like you're a couple months pregnant. And I, that was happening to me a lot in high school and I didn't understand why. And I was like, oh, well, I guess my body's just changing. I guess I'm getting fat. I guess if I don't eat, then my stomach will be flat. Or if I do eat and then I throw it up, then my stomach will be flat. So that was why I was doing that. I remember that being one of the reasons why I was like, I'm going to do this. But it wasn't until I realized what endobelly was in my late 20s that I realized that that's that the endometriosis contributed to that decision. So while you're still in your teens, though, and you're seeing these doctors, nobody really gave you quality information to direct you to endometriosis. No. So how did you eventually get to that diagnosis? I heard the word endometriosis for the first time when I was 22 years old after college, visiting my friend who was finishing up shortly after me for her final art show. And I was staying on her couch and I had an episode and it was one of the worst episodes I've ever had. And my girlfriends that I was with convinced me that I should call, I, sh I should go, I should go into the emergency room. I, we didn't, they took me to the emergency room. We didn't call anybody to come because it's expensive as fuck. Um, so anybody out there just don't call an ambulance it's not a good idea just have somebody take you if you can't um you'll get a thousand dollar bill unnecessarily so i um uh, if not more and i uh yeah i went and the doctor there was like or the nurse at the end like after i you know did the run through the, the reason i didn't want to go which is the same thing that happens every single time like I, at that point i'd been many times one time i was there because my i was there for my friend whose dad was dying and while her dad was dying i had an episode and they had to take me back into the emergency room and they shot me up and all that stuff. And then when I woke up, he was dead. So it was like, I mean, it, I've just been in the hospital so many times and talked to doctors so many times and every time they didn't help. So I just was really reluctant towards going. But that time I'm glad I went because this nurse 
at the end said, have you heard of endometriosis? And I looked at her like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, of course I haven't heard of it. Like, as if it's my job to know these words and diagnose myself and find a treatment plan. Like, no, that's your job or your, your doctor's job or somebody's job, not me. And I, I just remember being pissed off more than anything. But then I went home and I was like, fine, okay. I Googled it and I read the list of symptoms. And I was like, holy shit, this is exactly what I have. Like, obviously, this is exactly what I have. I was like, you know, not even questioning it for a second. And then I, I started going to doctors and being like, I have endometriosis. What do we do to treat endometriosis? And then things got really weird. That's when they started to really treat me like I was crazy because they were like, how, you know, basically, if you say that to a doctor, especially a doctor that has a big ego, they don't want to hear anything else because they're like, oh, this girl is Munchausen. She diagnosed herself. She's consulting Dr. Google. I can never convince her of the fact that I don't believe that her disease is a real issue. And that's the problem is doctors don't understand how big of an, they don't understand the lived experience of women with endometriosis. There are women with endometriosis who are doctors. So those women do get it, but there's a handful of them. And to explain this to the male doctors that treat endometriosis is very challenging. And there are men that are, that are great and are trying their best. But in my, in my book, like I will, I can't, no matter, no matter how good of a doctor you are, you just don't know what it feels like. So I need a female doctor for myself um, because she knows what it feels like to be me. Um, my doctor, my surgeon has endometriosis as well. So it's very common. It's a huge problem and it can be the risk of the of of leading to ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, hysterectomies, even strokes because it can grow in the brain. I, I've even heard of people who it's affected their heart, um, their kidneys, their diaphragm. You know, in order for all of that to to not happen later in life when the d- disease progresses, we have to be treating girls. We have to be teaching girls what the symptoms are and what it feels like. In, in general terms, as much as possible before they get their periods. Because if I had that information before I got my period, I would have been able to go to my doctor and advocate for myself and say, you know, I learned this in my health class and I've been told that pelvic pain is not normal. Can you please send me to somebody who specializes in endometriosis or PCOS and have them examine me? Because now there are doctors, again, a handful of them. There's only a hundred specialists for endometriosis in the world. So even a smaller subset that even that fully understand the disease um, that can diagnose it with an ultrasound, because most doctors, even specialists, most of whom are out of network and make bank off of doing this, say that you can only diagnose endometriosis with a surgical procedure through explorative laparoscopy. That's not true. If you know how to look for it, you can find at least evidence of it, diagnose it, so then that woman or that girl can get a treatment plan covered by her insurance before we approach invasive, expensive surgeries. What sort of treatment plans would a doctor uh, have if the doctor finds out that you do have endometriosis? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, a medical Western doctor will most likely tell you that your treatment options are birth control, birth control, and birth control. So they just think it's hormonal then? Yeah. They're not talking about the generational trauma. They're not talking about the mental health. They're not talking about the dioxins that are still living in our topsoil because they were only banned in 2001 and sprayed all over our food religiously until then. They're not talking about nuclear disasters that have been in our air for a very long time and affecting women's bodies specifically because the uterus is one of the most absorptive organs in human existence. They're not talking about how you need to wash your produce carefully and how you can eat a very specific diet to support your hormones and maintain inflammation levels at a low, low level so that you don't, again, cause this to grow more over life because it grows like a cancer. It needs to be excised like a cancer. However, most cases are treating it like something that you can just maintain over time with ablations, which it means that they go in laparoscopically and burn the shit out of everything 
it just burns the top layer. The endometriosis still lives below. It will come back and that scar tissue is sticky and will cause more problems in your most musculoskeletal structure that will lead to more pain and will lead to more surgeries and will eventually lead to a hysterectomy. And that still won't solve your problems because you'll still have scar tissue everywhere and endometriosis everywhere. And much of the endometriosis is clear. So you can only see it under uh, um, violet light or like a iridescent, whatever they call it, they, they glow it up <laughs> so they can see it. Um, and then they expertly excise it. And again, the handful of people that can expertly excise it are, is very, very limited. So we need to be teaching doctors how to expertly excise. We need to be teaching doctors about nutrition. They get like one credit of nutrition to be a doctor. I mean, they, they, you should be a certified, in my opinion, in order to be a doctor, especially one that treats, treats anything that's hormonally based, you need to be a certified nutritionist. If you're not, what are you doing? You're doing a huge disservice to your patients by not understanding how nutrition and how proper nourishing foods, anti-inflammatory foods can treat so many autoimmune diseases. We're not just talking endometriosis when it comes to that. Yeah. I mean, food is thy medicine, right? Socrates? Or Play-Doh. I can't remember either, but it's ancient truth. Yeah. So now when you eventually got the diagnosis, how did that happen? So I got my formal diagnosis this past year, 2000 or a year and a half ago, 2018, towards the end of November, 2018. I will not forget November because um, I booked that appointment in eight months prior to that. So in 2017, I had to wait that long to see this doctor because she was so booked up. And the only reason I found her was because um, my assistant who does all of our customer service, she was over or we were on the phone or can't remember how we, but I was in so much pain and I was just like dying. And she's like, Paula, this is not normal. What the hell is going on? And I finally opened up to her and I told her I had endometriosis because I kept a lot of this to myself. I just didn't want to burden other people. And I was teaching at the same time and like constantly having to tell my bosses like, shit, I can't make class. I'm dying. Please step in. Like it was embarrassing to consistently bring up. And a lot of time I felt like people didn't believe me because they're like, oh, this girl is just constantly sick. You know, so I tried to keep it on the DL as much as possible. But I told her and she was like, oh, my God, I have a friend who has that. And she had this doctor, like, blah, 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 changed her life. Or, or somebody somebody knew this doctor somehow, and she gave me her number. And I looked her up, found her, booked an appointment. And the first time she saw me, a year after she – almost a year after I made the appointment, eight months after I made the appointment, she said, yeah, you have endometriosis on the ultrasound. I was like, what? She goes, and you might have adenomyosis, and your uterus might be retroverted. And I was like, well, excuse me? <laughs> And, uh, like that was the most, the most information anybody had given me. I had another doctor tell me I had two uteruses. I don't, my uterus was folded in half. So it had a shadow on the other side. So it looked like it was two, but it was just one, one little guy fold or girl folded in half. (laughs) So did that specialist perform an ultrasound on you and then just looked at the results right then and there? So she didn't have to take a sample. No, she didn't take a sample. She just like did the internal ultrasound mm-hmm. and was like, yeah, this is where I can see it. And this is where I can see it. And I was like, how can you see it? I literally remember asking her that because I had been so many times, so many doctors had done the exact same thing. And they, she goes, they don't know what they're looking for. And it's true. They just, it, God bless them. They don't know what they're looking for. And they, and most, I, I sound like a kind of a, a, a doctor hater, but I'm not. Many of the doctors that I saw were perfectly good-hearted, loving people. They just didn't understand what I was going through and they didn't understand how to see it, how to treat it, how to, any, any of the above. So, you know, everyone's just doing the best they can with what they know. And we need doctors to know this. And there's a book, great book for anybody out there that is like, this is me. Um, it's called Beating Endo. Anybody who has endometriosis has to read it. And it might be on my shelf here somewhere. We can link it in the show yeah. notes too. Uh, it might be on the shelf behind you. <laughs> yeah, it is somewhere on one of these shelves. There's one other one in front of me, same size. Um, and it it explains how this doctor who wrote this book, who also has, an, has endo, she does these slideshows um, where she goes to um, OB conferences and she asks hundreds of doctors in the in the auditorium to look at pictures and ask them to raise their hand if they see endometriosis. So, you know, they're going through hundreds of pictures and one, a doctor here, a doctor there raises their hand. And when she's finished with the slideshow, she looks at everybody and she says, 
she does this over and over and over again to show doctors how they need to get better at their skills in reading ultrasounds. She says, every single picture you just saw had endometriosis. And we need to get to a place where when we show those pictures, no matter which picture it is, every person in the room is raising their hand, not just because they're in on it, but because they can see it. I mean, I can only imagine as a young person who, you know, I, I remember what it was like when I first got my period. And it's already, you're like glad that it happened. But at the same time, you're like, oh shit, man. Like, okay, here we go. You know, you don't really know what you're doing at first. You don't really know what to expect because like you said, you don't know if you're going to have extreme cramps like other people. I mean, you hear all these symptoms like you're going to have PMS. You're going to be a bitch. You're going to want chocolate. You're going to be in pain. And you're just like, dang, this sounds horrible. Yeah, the the rhetoric is terrible. (laughs) It doesn't actually have to be like that for anyone. You can just have a period and it's normal. I'm on my period right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Well, I want to get into also the process that you've gone through since the diagnosis to where you are now too. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, so let's say that there's a parent listening and maybe they have like a young teen girl who is saying like, I'm experiencing a ton of pain. What are some resources that you would point someone to, to guide them to say like, okay, let's figure out if this could be something that you're dealing with? Yeah. So, I mean, immediately I would pick up beating endo and read it because it just, it's the most comprehensive explanation as to what the disease actually feels like. So Um, if the girl reads it and relates to it, you know, I'm not a doctor, but in my opinion, nine times out of 10, she probably has it. Um, and then in addition to that, it gives you a lot of resources to try to address it yourself, because I think that a lot of the trauma that gets kind of layered on top of having endometriosis is the experience with the medical world. Um, so I'm not saying avoid doctors. I'm just saying there are a lot of things that you can do to help yourself. And obviously talk to your doctor about all the things that you're doing. And if it, if it's necessary, go see a specialist, but go there with full knowledge of what you deserve as a patient, what you know about the disease and present it succinctly, respectfully, and assertively because it needs to be spread. Like the more patients that do that to their doctors, the more doctors will realize, Hey, I don't know about this. And there's a lot of people that are asking me about this. I should probably learn about this. Because right now what we have is a lot of doctors that don't even understand that their patients maybe are unhappy on their IUD, maybe are unhappy with their current choice of birth control. Um, A lot of young girls that are getting put on these things before they're even sexually active to deal with pain that they they could deal with with a healthy diet, with bringing mindfulness and meditation to their lives early on, with going to a mental health professional to help deal with baggage that they're carrying unnecessarily that they don't have to, so they don't have to do that in their twenties. So many of us young women end up unpacking our teen years that no one helped us out with in our twenties only to finally be moving towards the light at the end of the tunnel, which is I'm approaching my thirties. And I do see it kind of that way because the twenties have been, I've been trekking. It's like the dark night of the soul. Like I've been trekking through so much unlearning and, releasing and like reprogramming that moms could totally give their teens right now, which is kind of what you said. It doesn't have to be all bad. Your period is a beautiful expression of your body's ability to create life. It's the greatest gift that we've been given as humanity. The fact that we can continue our race of humans and it's something that should be honored and respected, something that requires nourishment and it's a time to rest and to restore and to respect your body and to create healthy boundaries and to, you know, all these things that we just, we, we, we approach it so differently um, historically. And that, the way that we think about things is the way that we live things out. So if we can think about periods as something beautiful and something to be treasured, then the whole the whole trajectory shifts right there from the beginning. And then if things do go wrong, it's much easier to change course, right? You're not having to make a full 180 turn. You're maybe constantly doing little 360s, but like you you'll be fine. Um, and then obviously, you know, diet is super important. Um, sexual health is super important. I think that this is something that 
is very little talked about because of the taboo surrounding it. But one thing that I want to make super clear to everybody listening, so bad sexual education or lack thereof leads to physical disease. I'll say it again. It can actually lead to physical disease. So if a woman is penetrated before she's ready or a girl, because let's be honest, girls are doing this at a younger and younger age, especially teenagers. If she's not ready to receive and she doesn't feel a connection with her partner to where her body is fully lubricated and where she is actually interested and aroused and is radically saying, yes, let's do whatever it is that we're going to do. It can lead to pelvic floor dysfunction, intestinal cystitis, endometriosis, and a bunch of other shit. So explaining how the female arousal system works in detail to young girls from a scientific approach is vitally important to their health. Sex isn't something to be looked at as negative. It's something to be enjoyed. Or provocative. It's something that everybody's going to do at some point in their life. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or they don't want to They don't have to. That's why we're all here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's that's like a, an episode that uh, I have my eye on someone that I want to bring on to talk about that Good. Uh, aspect Good. as well. But I want to hear about your story and what happened after you found the specialist and where you are today. Okay, okay. so um, after I found Mona O'Reilly, uh, it's her name, Dr. O'Reilly, uh, she just made me feel safe for the first time with a doctor, which was huge. That alone is like big win. Um, she did not tell me immediately that I had to have surgery. She said, she gave me all my options. She did want me to go on birth control. I told her I didn't want to. She listened. She put me on a low dose of progestin, which I also don't really suggest for a variety of different reasons. It didn't work for me. It works for some people. Um, but I tried that for like a year. It helped decrease my pain 100%, but it gave me a lot of like moody side effects, which I didn't enjoy. And like, especially when you work for yourself, like it's really hard to be working for yourself and also have wild hormones and mental stuff going on. Um, so I replaced pain with mental issues, which was, you know, I managed cause I luckily am a meditation teacher and a yoga teacher. So I know how to manage, but I didn't like how much I had to manage. So I went off, um, pain came back and then Right after my 28th birthday is when I realized how bad it was. I had an, an episode that actually affected my bowels. I fainted from pain. I woke up sitting in my own shit. I realized, like, you know, things are really, really bad. So then I decided, okay, I'm going to have the surgery. Because she had explained to me what the surgery would be. And I called her immediately. And I was like, all right, let's do this. Let's see what's going on in there. I, like, I got to know. Because that, that's the thing. Is there's no way to really know what's actually happening unless you do the surgery. And that's why doctors want to leap to the surgery, but we can diagnose before leaving the surgery. We can try other things before leaving the surgery. So then I um, decided to do the surgery, had the surgery a couple of months later. The surgery finally gave me like a legit excuse to stop working completely because I had kind of slowed down for a while, but I w- didn't stop. Um, I didn't really have the mental space to dive into what the disease was. I didn't read the beating endo until after my surgery. I didn't really dive in to a lot of the stuff that I know now until I came home from my surgery. Cause I had two weeks of bed rest. So I was just, you know, like I was reading everything I could read. And that's when I realized, holy shit, this is a, this problem is bigger than me. I got to get out there. Like this is, we need people on the front lines fighting for these millions of women, 200 million women worldwide. Like we need to fight. Um, so yeah, that's been that's been what's happened since I had the surgery. I brought in, you know, a, a really amazing diet that I have an incredible at-home chef for my boyfriend, <laughs> who's been super supportive. Um, he also had a he has an autoimmune disorder as well, um, and so he's on this diet essentially all the time. And he he's always wanted me to get on it with him. So now, you know, it, it's kind of seamless in that in that way. Um, it helps a lot to be on an anti-inflammatory diet. Every time I cheat, I pay. Um, but life is not worth living without just a little bit of cheating. So it's okay. And then that's the other part of it is like, if you try to make this a super regimented, regimented, like regime, um, 
it's going to be depressing. Like you are going to constantly beat yourself up. So like I have a glass of wine once in a while. Like I have chocolate once in a while. I I do have sugar once in a while, even though I shouldn't all the time. Like I reserve it for a treat and okay, I get a little crampy later, but I know why and I can control it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a journey. Like there's still ups and downs. I'm still trying different, like the, I want to be super clear that the surgery doesn't cure you. It removes past inflammation. It rearranged my anatomy to actually be in the right place. My uterus is no longer folded in half and attached to my... You don't have two now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't have faux uteri. Um, (laughs) And, you know, my bladder, I still have some bladder symptoms because I have endometriosis inside of my bladder. So they can excise it off the outside, but it's, you know, I can't remove my bladder. So, you know, again, it's just managing and... Yeah, I I do my belly massages every night. I do my pelvic floor drops, which is a breathing technique every morning. Um, And all this is explained in beating endo. Like, they really get into it. I go to pelvic, well, I used to go to physical therapy. Kind of stopped going because it's too expensive and because of the current pandemic. Um, But yeah, I just, you know, I try to approach everything as diligently and as lightheartedly as I can. Uh, Try not to be too hard on myself in the process. Did you ever try any acupuncture or anything for pain management or? Yes. Thank you. Um, I did acupuncture weekly for a long time after my surgery. Um, that helped tremendously. I will say though, that make sure you find an acupuncturist that you really, really like, because the thing about acupuncture is that, um, there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of people that know their shit, but that they kind of, their bedside manner kind of sucks. And that, stressed me out when I had somebody like that. They didn't understand my circumstances, even though she was a specialist in endometriosis. And that's all she dealt with was fertility and endometriosis. Like I showed up once like a couple of couple minutes late. And the next time again, like I was significantly late, but I was in so much pain, which was why I was late. I could literally had to stop, pull over because I was in so much pain while driving. And she just was so rude to me. I was like, okay, I'm never coming back. Like you clearly don't understand what this disease does so like if you're gonna get on my case about this and I'm here to heal then like I mean I'll wait as long as you want me to wait just be nice so there's that um I think that finding people that you trust for all of the above especially for um pelvic floor therapy that is really really important because it's a very personal experience it's the most helpful thing I did other than acupuncture because a lot of, of people with endo develop pelvic floor dysfunction or it comes first. We don't really know whether it's the chicken or the egg. Um, but I had a complete la- loss of motor control almost on the left side of my pelvic floor. So pe- what people don't understand about continence, which is, you know, your ability to hold what, your business, um, it's voluntary. So that's why babies pee themselves because they have to learn how to voluntarily hold it when they, you know, are not on a toilet. So if you lose pelvic floor control due to chronic pain, your, your ability to hold it will go away too. So by using tactile pressure on uh, the pelvic floor and on, you know, areas surrounding um, and breathing exercises in tandem, you can actually retrain those voluntary muscles to have a better mind-body connection so that you don't have that symptom um, on top of the already shitty diagnosis. I wanted to ask you, what is a key takeaway that you would like to leave the audience with? Gosh, I mean, I've had so many deep thoughts these days, spending so much time alone that there's so many things that I, that I could say. Um, but I think the, the key thing is be honest with your body about how it feels on all levels. Um, write things down. Um, don't forget to, to, to nurture your feelings because your feelings aren't lying to you, whether they be emotional or whether they be, they be physical. We're designed to feel for a reason, and there's so much information there. So that's why it took me so long, I think, to be able to get a doctor to understand and listen and even share that one word because so much of how we approach life in the modern world is to desensitize, to numb out, to say, oh, this is too much. I don't want to deal with it. Or this is too dark. I don't want to look at it. Or this is, we have to look 
at the dark, scary feelings and experiences too, because there it actually lies our power. And if you actually want to be fearless in life, you have to face the fears of life. You can't just ignore your fears because they're going to affect you one way or another. They're living in you subconsciously and they are being passed down through your cells to your future generations. So if you don't deal with your shit, it's like you're wrapping it up in a little package, putting a bow on it and handing it to your child and saying, here, now it's your turn. Deal with it. But we could give them the real gift, which is healing. Some people may not realize that we were eggs in our mom when our grandmother was pregnant with our mom. So we actually were within our grandmother. So when you're talking about generational scenarios that are passed down, there really is the truth behind that. We really were living there and and your body feels the stress and the other little beings in your cells, they're feeling that stress too. Yep, they are. And I mean, we, we they've done actual controlled experiments to prove this. This is not some like theoretical thing. They've done it in chimps and in rats now, which have the closest nervous systems to ours. And what they do is, is they to control the test is they they have a litter and then they separate that litter in half. They leave half the litter with the mothers and then they take the other half and they put them in isolation and they give them everything that they need on a physiological level, but they don't give them emotional support. They don't give them like physical touch with their mother. They don't give them any of the stuff that's actually absolutely necessary for immune development, nervous system development, all of the above. And so what happens then is they develop all sorts of mental health issues. Physiologically, they're fine, but they've got some mental stuff going on. Like you can tell from the way that they're behaving, the way that they're behaving between each other to like they bob back and forth, coping mechanisms, you know, all sorts of weird mental things. And then they impregnate them, which sounds cruel, but this is how they do these experiments, unfortunately, and we're gaining a lot of information from them. And those babies, they call them the motherless mothers, they develop physiological responses to this generational trauma. And they show up with organs born outside of their bodies, endometriosis, psoriasis, MS, you name it, they have it. And we wonder where these chronic diseases come from. There's no need for us to wonder. We have the proof now. So we need to integrate this stuff into medicine. We need to bring mental health care into the general practice room, not even just OB room. Like we need that to be just as regular as your GP. And we need to have access to yoga and mindfulness and meditation and nutrition and acupuncture and physical therapy as a part of our insurance plans. This can't be a secondary thing because this is actually the front line of medicine, in my opinion. If we can do all these things first, Though we don't need to have expensive ass surgeries. We don't need to have drugs, cocktails that people are going to be on for the rest of their lives. We can do this. Like we have the knowledge. So maybe that's the last thing I want to leave everybody with is we can do this. Like this, this, we have all the tools and you guys are talking to the people and you're sharing the information and thank you so much for doing it because that's how we're going to change the world. Right on. What are some of uh, the resources that you would like to leave the audience with? Eating Endo, The Body Never Lies, and then there's another one with a very similar title, which is called The Body Keeps the Score, and uh, Woman Code, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, Ask Me About My Uterus by Abby Norman. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a nice exhaustive list of everything that I've been reading uh, so that everybody can follow up. And like, if you're like me, I read, you know, 10 books at once and I'm just pulling things from here and there. And like, I like it that way because you can integrate and you're like, oh, that person said this and this person said that. And like, oh, it's, you know, it's all coming together. Um, but The Body Keeps the Score is really, really, really amazing because it, it really dives deep into personal experiences or that people have had with chronic pain, disorders, illnesses, and how the body was telling them a story that they just had to get to the bottom of um, <laughs> to, you know, find that, that healing that is available. We all have, we have the information within us. Awesome. And where can the audience find you? You can find me on Instagram. Um, you can find me in the interwebs. Um, my personal website is Pavlova wellness, uh, com. So pretty simple. My last name, wellness.com, like the dessert but healthier. <laughs> and um, then I also run Moonbox 
and you can find that at moonbox.co, no M, and it's self-care rituals for the moon cycle, which all women are naturally synced to. And um, also Gaia Collective, which is our platform for like divine feminine vibes, elevating them throughout society with just really good messaging and content. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have you join us, share your story, tell the world about this topic and share your light on it. We appreciate you elevating the vibe with us. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, I really enjoyed talking with you guys and I hope this helps someone somewhere. You guys can feel free to DM me on my personal Instagram or send me an email. My email is just paula at pebblevelwellness.com. All right. Well, thank you, Paula. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye. What up, Vibe Hive? If this podcast has brought you any value, please rate and review on your favorite listening platform. And if you're really feeling generous, share with a friend. Visit us at elevatethevibe.co for show notes on this episode and previous episodes. This podcast is intended to educate, entertain, and inspire. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions you may have. Thank you for helping us to elevate the vibe.